How are you guys doing? Good. Awesome. It is good to be with you. I, I haven't preached for two weeks here, and that is strange for me. But it's nice to know as a pastor that if I don't preach for two weeks, that the sermons actually get better. That's uh, No, I, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, this series so far on the Minor Prophets. Are you guys enjoying this? I think it's great. Um, I think this series is a great time for us to get to know a little bit more of biblical history, maybe learn a little bit more about some stories that we don't know super well. Um, but really, the reason that we are doing this series is because I think the prophets, um, the minor prophets and the major prophets, act like a mirror. They kind of show us uh, who we are and who God is. And so one of the things I like to do um, if I'm reading through the minor prophets or, or the prophets in general is every time that the prophet says like, hey, stop doing this or we need to start doing this, I put my name in there. That I, I don't necessarily want to think of it as these words spoken to um, these people a long time ago, but I really do believe that the words that the prophets have to say apply to who we are in the 21st century as well, sometimes in really, really crazy ways. Um, so let's jump in this morning. We're going to be looking at Hosea, and I want to give a few disclaimers before we jump in. Who, is anyone familiar with the story of Hosea? A few of you guys? Let me just say it is a weird story. It is a weird, complicated story. Um, but a few disclaimers. Uh, first of all, uh, there is very gendered language in this book. Um, and a few things about that is uh, it's about a story of marriage. And in this story, it talks about God being the husband and us being his wife. And I just want to say that the context of God being husband and us being his wife, um, it, it, it doesn't really, the gender of it doesn't matter all that much. It's really just talking about a marriage. So you can, you can put partner, you can just put spouse in the idea of the marriage. It doesn't matter that God is the husband and, and we are the wife. It's just, and, and let me just say too, gender is a hot button loaded issue right now. And so one of the things that we will see is many places in the English Bible, there is male analogies for God. But I also want to tell you that there are also female analogies for God as well. And we know that God isn't a boy. Um, God doesn't have a gender. And in fact, that shouldn't be a controversial statement. And in saying that, um, I'm not trying to make any kind of statement about that. I'm just saying God's not a man. God is has no gender. Uh, he is uh, both, both male and female were created in his image. And so when we say God, like he is this, we're not actually saying God is a boy. We are saying that God, it's just, it's just pronouns are weird. So there's that. Two, I want to say that... Um, this story is about a woman who is adulterous. And I just, I have uh, noticed, I don't know if you guys have, but there is this like 
it's this narrative that we see a lot of times in the church about this temptress woman. Like this woman who's out to, out to get you men and be careful because there's, there's the, the good godly woman and then there's the adulterous woman. And, and I don't think that is a, a really healthy analogy to, to push forward. In fact, the Bible probably talks about more adulterous men than it talks about adulterous women. Um, and so it just so happens that this story is about a woman who is adulterous. Another just final uh, disclaimer is that I was, li- I was reading a bunch of commentaries about this story this week, and a lot of the things that they talked about um, when, it, when it comes to marriage was using these analogies about how marriage is like the most important thing that you can do as a human, that it's the most important relationship, that it's the higher and more intimate than other relationships. And I just don't think that is biblical. Um, first of all, Jesus was never married. So if Jesus was never married, th- that means that it's okay to not be married. <laughs> and Paul actually encourages people to not be married. Uh, in the Old Testament, David says that his friendship with Jonathan was more intimate and deeper than a relationship with a lover. And so we know that uh, a marriage is an important relationship to talk about, but it's not the pinnacle of all relationships. So those are the disclaimers, and now we're going to jump into the actual story. Um, But this story is about marriage. And basically, uh, the book of Hosea is a collection of Hosea's prophecies and poetry and some of his stories. He's not the writer of the book. We don't know who the writer is, but it was uh, a prophet who was around in about 8th century BC. And the book of Hosea is basically divided up into three sections, three different sections that all have the same theme. And the, the theme throughout Hosea is faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And, and this morning, we're going to be looking at primarily the first section because I think it sets the stage and kind of gives the whole idea of the rest of the book. But basically, the first section is about his marriage to this woman named Gomer, which, if you're going to have a kid, I think Gomer is a great name for a daughter. Um, (laughs) uh, But a little bit about his time is Israel at this time had broken away from the, the, the nation of Judah. So there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they had broken away from one another. And Israel was thriving. Financially, they had peace. It was, it was a really affluent time for the Israelites, except for the, the issue of morality. Israel was in spiritual and moral decay at this point. Um, They were abusing people. There was all these uh, systems of injustice that they were having and and just putting into practice. Um, Also, we just see like some really perverse things that were going on. Um, They were still going to the temple to worship God, but they had like sex, sex workers in the temple and they were doing all kinds of crazy orgies in the temple. They also 
not only worshipped Yahweh, the, the one true God, but they also were beginning to incorporate all the different idols from the surrounding uh, nations. And that's kind of the backdrop of where we're going to jump in. So Hosea was a prophet, and, and he sees this uh, just this unrest and this evilness that was happening in the nation of Israel, and he goes to God to talk to him about it, and God tells Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman named Gomer. And it's unclear in the story if Gomer was promiscuous before the marriage or after the marriage, but we can see that after the marriage, he, she uh, had lots of affairs and was adulterous. Um, and we also don't know why she was promiscuous. I mean, a lot of times in first century, or in you know, eight BC. Uh, women were forced into sex work, and there was lots of reasons why she could have been that way, and we don't know. Um, but God tells Hosea to marry her, and he says to Hosea that she's going to be unfaithful. And he basically says, I want you to see, and I want my people to see, that this is a picture of how Israel is with me. That Gomer relationship to Hosea is a picture of Israel's relationship with God. So the first kind of point that I think we can gather from this is that we are unfaithful. Kind of one of the major themes that we see through the, the story of Hosea, and really it's a major theme throughout the Bible, is that we are unfaithful. We're prone to wander. That so many things take the place of God in our lives. I know uh, God gave me this picture a long time ago that has been really helpful to me. Is that in my heart there's a throne that belongs to Jesus. And pretty much every day and multiple times throughout the day, different people or different things are sitting on that throne. And I have to remind myself, no, that, that's God's throne. That's God's throne. It says in Hosea, it says this, For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And we see a lot of analogies in the Bible for God. Like we were saying, there's some analogies that are masculine, some that are feminine. Like some of them, one of the feminine ones is like God is a mother hen. And the, the, most of the analogies for the Holy Spirit are actually female analogies. But this, this analogy of, of being a husband is interesting because most of the analogies that we typically think of, or at least I do, and what get talked about most of the time in churches are the analogies like he's our shepherd. God is the shepherd. He guides us. Or he, God is king. He's in control. He's in charge. Or a parent that he nurtures and, 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 and raises us up and cares for us. But we also see this picture all throughout Scripture of God being the groom and us being the bride. In fact, when Jesus enters in the scene, this was one of the things that was very controversial, was all throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the groom. And when Jesus comes and says, 
I am the groom. What it would have meant for people is they're saying, oh, he's saying he's God. This is a very, very important analogy. And I think, you know, we see it all over in Isaiah 54. It says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, and he's called the God of all the earth. And I don't know about you, but sometimes this analogy of God being my husband makes me kind of feel uncomfortable. It can be weird. It can be like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I think what it means is it, it's communicating the, one of the aspects, the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us and with you. And there's, there's, a few, there's so many things we can draw out of it, but a couple things I want to draw out of that this morning is that, like I said, marriage isn't the pinnacle of all relationships, but it's a very specific kind of relationship. There are specific details about marriage that are unique or that are important. One of them is that a marriage implies fidelity and covenant. Those are some of the things that we really hold on to, that we believe that marriage is about fidelity and covenant. And what those words mean, those are, you know, we may have heard those words, but sometimes they lose their meaning. Covenant means lifelong. It is a promise that we have made. When you make a covenant with a spouse, you say, till death do us part. That's, that's the covenant that God wants to have with us. And fidelity means faithfulness to one person. That God says, I want you to be faithful to me, to have no other gods. And in a marriage that we believe that covenant and fidelity are two very important primary things of what makes a marriage a marriage. That's why we say things like forsaking all others, or for better or for worse, till death do us part. And again, it's not saying that other relationships aren't special or wonderful, but this is the kind of relationship God is calling us into, one of covenant and one of fidelity, saying, have no other gods, and I will be with you forever. There's a covenant and a faithfulness to it. And another thing about a relationship with a spouse is ideally they should be extremely intimate, right? There should be an intimacy that you have with a spouse. That intimacy, the, 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 the way I think about the word, what's helpful for me when I think about the word intimacy is saying, into me see. The intimacy means I want you to see all of me. I want you to see the good things. Like, you know, when you're Going out, Laura and I kind of got to know each other uh, mostly through Facebook at the beginning. And so we have this really awkward thing where we can see the messages that we send to each other at the very beginning of our relationship. And we see us putting our best foot forward, saying things that are like maybe not untrue, but maybe not fully true. You know what I'm saying? But like the more you get to know someone in a marriage, ideally, the more that you're not hiding, like, the bad stuff, right? 
It's an intimate knowledge, not just from afar. Not just from afar. Like God wants to know you and to be known by you. Like a lot of times we can know a lot about God, but, but he's saying, I want you to actually know me. In fact, if we read to, to the end of Hosea, at the end, God says, like the greatest sin, the greatest sin of Israel is they don't know me. And he, it's, it's the word know that doesn't mean know about. It means like intimate knowledge that you don't know me. Siri's trying to talk to me. Um, but it was interesting. Actually, this week this came up in my marriage because Laura was having a, a rough time. She's been having a rough few months, actually, and she was talking to me about, like, you know, I was telling her how I just think you're amazing, sweetheart. I think you're so wonderful, and you just have so much to offer, and you challenge me. You're so great. And she's like, I just feel like I have you tricked. Like, I feel like I just have you fooled. And I normally don't say these things, but I said, Laura, like, I know the worst things about you. Like, you annoy me a lot, and you have things that are frustrating, and you have things that I can see are shortcomings, but I still think you're amazing. Like, you don't have me fooled. I see the bad things about you, and I still think you're great. And that's, like, that's intimacy. Intimacy is saying, I want you to see the gross things, the embarrassing things, the things that I don't want anyone to know about. And that's what God is saying this is the relationship I'm calling you into with me. But he says, you have been unfaithful to me. And unfaithfulness in a marriage can be very painful. And I think um, one of the things I think God wants to illustrate in this story is that as spouse relationship as like a marriage relationship that us being unfaithful is a is such a better way of looking at like sin when we talk about sin so many times i just think about it as breaking the cosmic rules like did i did i follow a b and c did i do this right did i you know, follow these arbitrary rules that have been set up for us. But, but the Bible tells us, and this story tells us, that it's, it's more akin, it's more similar to being unfaithful in a marriage. That sin is saying, I'm turning to other things. I'm taking on this as the thing that gives me meaning. I'm looking to this to fill me up. It's like breaking a wedding vow. And the Bible refers to this as idolatry. This is when the Bible said, talks about idolatry. This is what it's talking about. And so many times we think of idolatry as worshiping statues, right? Like when the Bible says, don't commit idolatry, we think, well, I'm not like bowing down to a statue. I'm good. Um, but really... It's the heart of what idolatry is, is what those statues represent. Like the people, like the ancient people of Israel, 
they weren't just like worshiping statues. That's not what the problem was. The problem was what the statues represented. The statues represented uh, financial wealth. Like they would worship this statue so that they're, 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 if we worship this God, our country and I can be more successful or it would represent fertility or, or the crops would be better this year. And it would be things that these, these statues, these things behind the statues like wealth and security and, and, and relationships are the things that we're actually worshiping. It's not the statue. And God would say that me and you still do that today. We still think our bank account is what's going to give us identity or security or hope. We still think that health is the ultimate important thing that's going to make us feel okay. Or this relationship, if I just had this career, if I just had this person to tell me I was okay, if I just had fill in the blank. That's a good way to kind of test for yourself if, if there is an idol in your life. If you say things, if I just had this, then I would be this. There's a good chance that maybe you're making this an idol. And God is saying, what is the object of your affection? What is the thing that you daydream about? What is the thing that you feel is going to give you security, identity, belonging, peace? And he's saying, I want that to be me. I want that to be me. And if you're anything like me, uh, it is like a multiple times a day thing that I realize, oh, I'm turning to other things when I should be turning to God. I forget who it was, but I remember someone referred to human beings as idol factories. Like we just continuously make them. God says we have been unfaithful. We have given our attention to other things. But let me say this. I have seen so often that that is the point of this story, our unfaithfulness. But I don't believe that's the main point of the story. I actually think that is a smaller point. I think the main point of the story is not our unfaithfulness, but God's faithfulness. God is faithful. Hosea chapter 2 says this. After he's talking about Israel's unfaithfulness, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and in justice and love and in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. He says, even though Israel, you have been unfaithful to me, just like Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, I'm going to be faithful to you. That's the kind of God I am. That's the kind of spouse I am. That my covenant to you, my love for you is forever, and it is just, and it is right, and it is compassionate. 
and it is loving, and it is faithful. That's good news. That is such good news. And if you keep on reading the story, you'll see that Gomer continued to be unfaithful over and over again to the point that she leaves Hosea and actually somehow ends up becoming a, like a sex slave, that someone owns her and is selling her to different men. But listen to what God tells Hosea at that point. Hosea says, the Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, which was a pagan ritual. He says, even though they, she, she's doing all this, and just as Israel is doing all this, he says, go and, and, and show her back. Show her your love. And it says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, and about a homer and a thek of barley. Okay, so this feels very static. This feels very like just like, here's what happened, and this is what he did, and this is the amount that he bought her with. And it loses so much of the meaning. But basically what's happening is Hosea comes, his wife has left him and is now owned by another man and is a sex worker, and God says, I want you to go get her back. And so the text doesn't explicitly say this, but what in this culture, typically what would happen is most likely Gomer would have been put up for auction. Gomer would have been stripped naked and put in front of all of these people, dehumanizing her, humiliating her, objectifying her. And Hosea comes, and it says he bought her back with these, this weird denomination that doesn't mean anything to us today. But what it would have said to the original reader was he had to scramble. He had to, like, get together all that he had. And just says, I, I, can, give you, I can give you this and this and this and this. I will, I will pay everything for her back, all that I have. And then what he says to, to Gomer after he buys her out of the slavery, redeems her, is so powerful. And again, it loses its meaning a little bit. But it says, then I told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. And this, again, is a very bad translation. Let me, let me tell you what it's really saying. He says, Gomer, I love you and I want to be with you. And I'm, I've purchased you. I've redeemed you. You're free. I've already paid the price. You're free. You have your freedom. And so I'm not buying you for you to become my slave. I'm not buying you so that I can own you. I'm buying you for us to be together. But listen, you have to please be faithful to me. Please be faithful to me. 
And again, think about it. This is after he purchased her out of slavery. He didn't buy her with the condition that she is faithful. He bought her out of slavery and says, would you please be faithful? And the language sounds like it's more of a demand, but really the language was like, please, I'm asking you to be faithful to me. But the last thing he says in that statement is, I think, the most profound. When he says, and I will behave the same way towards you, this would have been so profound for the reader. Because a man in this culture would never say this to his wife. In this culture, it was typical for a man to say, you belong to me. But essentially what Jose was saying is, and I belong to you. That what I'm asking you of me, I will do the same to you, for you. This would be showing her so much dignity, so much respect, so much honor. It's really beautiful. But here's the thing. This story isn't about how awesome Hosea is. The story is not about how, just, isn't Hosea a good guy, you guys? It's not about that true love conquers all. What this story is about is it is a picture of how Jesus loves you. This is a story about God saying, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter what you've done, no matter what's going on in your life, I'm here for you. I will be faithful to you. And I will pay everything to get you back. I will give everything to get you back. Second Timothy chapter 2 tells us that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That is good news, you guys, because if you are like me, I struggle. The point of this story is not how faithful can we be. And guys, we got to be more faithful. The point of this story is that we are just going to be unfaithful. That is like kind of the basic thing is that's going to happen. We're going to turn to all of the other kinds of things and, and lose sight and, and rebel and push away and, and, and make a mess of things. And God is saying, but I will stay faithful to you no matter where you go. So no matter how much of a mess that you've made your life, no matter what you've done or what you're currently doing, God is saying, I'm for you. I love you. I'm faithful to you. His love for you is so persistent, so relentless. He loves you so much more than you could imagine. Just like Gomer, we have turned away from God. Just like Gomer, we, we, we essentially sit at the auction. And of all these things, bid for our attention and bid for our affection in our life and say, I want, I want to, I'll give you this. 
I'll give you success. I'll give you, you know, your dreams and your hopes, and I'll give you, you know, whatever. And God says, I will give you everything, all that I am. I will pay the price that, we, that no one could pay to get you back. This is how God treats us. This is how God, uh, what his heart is for you. He covers our shame as we stand there naked, humiliated, and covers us and says, oh, I, have, I want you to be covered in my honor and my love. And just as an aside, you know, one of the things that I always think of when I think of the story of Hosea is Hosea's life was like a living sermon. That his life was an example for us 21, you know, or thousands of years later to look at his life and see, oh, this is a picture of how God sees us. And Hosea may have never known that. And I, I've, I've come to realize that there are things that maybe I am walking through or maybe that you are walking through that God wants to use to show his love to others. And we may never understand it. Let me, let me tell you guys a story of John Wesley, who is one of the most famous evangelists of all time. John Wesley is just an a, a, amazing hero of the faith, um, and he was in Europe and like basically evangelized all of Europe, and then at one point wanted to come to the United States to evangelize primarily to the indigenous people of the United States. And by all accounts, it was the greatest failure of John Wesley's life. If you read his journals, I remember in Bible school when we were learning about church history, we were learning about John Wesley, and it said, my professor said, this was John Wesley's biggest failure, and I knew that it wasn't. And you know how I knew that it wasn't? Because my family, my great-great-great-grandfather came to faith through that mission. And my great-great-grandfather came to faith. He was a, um, his, his name was John Wesley Perkins. He was named after John Wesley because he became a follower of Jesus because of John Wesley's greatest failure. And I believe, I don't know the theology behind this. I might be wrong, but I felt like the Lord saying to me, JT, I had John Wesley go through his greatest failure so you could know. And that's the kind of love that God has for you. That you might be going through something hard, but we need to believe and trust that God is just so good that he can turn what the enemy wants to use for evil and use it for good. And we may never understand it. We may never, and I'm, listen, I'm not saying that God causes those things to happen. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm just saying he's so good that somehow he wins. Somehow he wins. 
And so this is the message of Hosea is that although we are faithful, God loves us. He is faithful. And that he would pay a great price for us even in our unfaithfulness. And that is what God is offering you today. And he's saying to you, I have purchased you not to become my slave, but for freedom. I've called you to be free. And I will be faithful to you no matter what. But would you be faithful to me? And even when you blow it, I'm still going to stay faithful to you. But would you be faithful to me? So why don't we do this? Why don't we stand? Last night I was praying and I felt like the Lord, um, I felt like the Lord uh, gave me a few things to just maybe, I don't know if challenge is the right word, but to, to, to say to you guys to say that maybe this would be something that the Lord would be encouraging you in. And I think for some of us here, we are keenly aware of our unfaithfulness. That it feels like maybe we have been beaten over the head with our unfaithfulness. We are very aware of where we lack. And that's where it stops. But I think God wants you to know how faithful he is to you. And almost the way that I was trying to tell my wife, he wants you to, to know, like, I know, I know it's wrong, but I think you're wonderful. I think you're beautiful. I think you're intelligent. I think I like the way I made you. I also think there may be some folks here who God is giving us a challenge, that he's saying, would you be faithful? This thing that you keep on bumping into, this thing that you keep on struggling with, I want to free you from that. And one of the beautiful things that we see later in this book is God says, he will heal our unfaithfulness. Meaning we can't heal our unfaithfulness. It is him in us that makes us faithful. And so one thing that I have learned over the years is the more I think about my unfaithfulness, the more unfaithful I seem to be. The more I focus on my sins, the more I seem to sin. The more I focus on my struggle, the more I seem to struggle. But when I fix my eyes on the solution is where I find freedom. The promise that God has for us is he says, fix your eyes on me. The picture of, of, of Moses lifting up the bronze snake and saying, anyone who fixes the eye, their eyes on this snake will be healed was a picture of how Jesus wants to interact with us, saying, fix your eyes on me, I bring healing. We don't have a bootstrap faith where we try harder to be faithful and try harder to be righteous. It's, it's a faith that we fix our eyes on Jesus and he begins to transform us from the inside out. And so I felt like there were some people here who are so focused on their brokenness and God is saying, I will heal you. Would you allow me to heal?